Thank you to all of you who are visiting with us today. We're thankful for you. Thank you for um, being uh, crammed into our sardine can, known as our sanctuary. We're grateful for you. We're grateful to worship together. This is not something we take lightly after last year at all. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Our Father, we come to you now thankful for the opportunity to open your word. Your word is truth. There is no other source. No human opinion counts for anything. There is no other revelation of God except your word. And of course, your dear son, Jesus Christ, but we only know him through your word. And so we thank you for the Bible, which is so clear and the the choice before us is so obvious from Scripture. We're commanded to obey the gospel, to repent of our sins, to come to faith in Jesus Christ for it is only through him that we would be forgiven and stand right before you. And as those who have been forgiven, then we would be called to obey the law of Christ to obey those precepts you have laid before us as our offering of worship and love back towards you. And so this is a very simple concept and I pray, Lord, that every person here either knows you or would this day confess their need for Christ. We thank you and praise you in his name. Amen. Her name was Anthusa. Not a name we hear very much today, but Anthusa lived in Antioch of Syria in the early 4th century AD, and she lived under the Roman Empire. As a very young woman, she married a high-ranking Roman military officer. She was a teenager, and a couple of years later, she gave birth to her son, John. She was just 20 years old. While John was an infant, sadly, Anthusa's husband died, and Anthusa never remarried. Now, Anthusa was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. She was a faithful follower of her Savior, and she made it her mission then in in life to tend to her son. She taught John the Bible continually. She instilled in him a tremendous love for the Scriptures. She pushed him toward knowing God, knowing the God of the Bible, and knowing the Bible which reveals God. She also understood the value of education. And so she first encouraged John to go and study law, which he did. And then she encouraged him to study theology, to know the Bible. And in return for his mother's love and influence, John stayed with her all the way until her death, caring for her and loving her, cherishing her. But it was because of her influence, it was because of her push, her guidance, her teaching, her training that at a very young age, John would gain a nickname in the church of Jesus Christ. And his nickname was the golden-mouthed one. In Greek, Chrysostomos. We know him as John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom was a tremendously gifted preacher in that day. He preached several times a week. And what was so refreshing and life-changing about his preaching is that he was a staunch advocate of what came to be known as the Antiochene exegesis. 
What does that mean? It's named after the city of Antioch. Well, today we call that a literal, historical, grammatical, hermeneutic Bible study method. In other words, a method of knowing the Bible that seeks to let the Bible speak for itself and interpret it according to the plain meaning. Now, you might say, well, isn't that what everybody does? No. And in fact, in John Chrysostom's day, most people didn't. What was popular in that day, what was, what was called an allegorical hermeneutic. That has become very popular. That is to look for hidden, shadowy meanings in the text that are somehow the real meaning. Well, John Chrysostom often preached in his church for over two hours. I love that. He cultivated such a love for the scriptures in his, that if, in his people that if he preached a short sermon, sometimes they booed him. I don't love that. In fact, his congregation was at times a bit unruly. They would break into applause at a particularly good point that he would make. And on one occasion, he, he got tired of it. And he told his church that Christ didn't have to contend with such ill-disciplined listeners, but his disciples waited quietly and politely until he'd finished. And so he rebuked his congregation and he concluded that sermon by exhorting the church to be more serious listeners. They should have a a serious demeanor. And he announced that all applause should be forbidden at that point. And the church agreed with him by applauding him heartily. (laughs) He worked hard at his craft of preaching. His sermons are so logical, so biblical in their argument that the 800 sermons we still have of Chrysostom, we have these 1,600 years later, they still serve as useful commentaries. I first read Chrysostom when I was 19 years old. I, last time I read them was two days ago. Very, very useful. What a gift to the church. And it all started with mom. It all started with Anthusa. Dr. John Kitchen wrote, In God's plan, a woman's role is rich, broad, and powerfully influential. That influence is first and fundamentally exercised in the bringing of the next generation into the world, nurturing them in the ways of God, and deploying them into the world to serve God. And that is our focus today on Mother's Day as we close out our series on the godly women of the church. And our text today is 1 Timothy 2.15, and you can turn there if you like, and We'll read one last time the entire passage concerning women in the church and then we'll examine Paul's high point, the the culmination of his argument that we've been going through verse by verse, his argument of God's divine order for men and women in the home and in this case in the church in particular. 1 Timothy 2, we'll begin in verse 9, but our concern will be verse 15. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, we've dug down very deeply into this passage and we've explained each of these verses in great detail. 
And so I'm not going to repeat all of that. Needless to say, if this is your first exposure to this passage and it makes the hair on the back of your head stand up a little bit, then go back and listen to those messages because we will see, you will see that the Bible is the sole authority for what is right and what is wrong. And this is a tremendously positive passage concerning women. Now, we're going to focus on verse 15. And verse 15, like the other verses, presents somewhat of a theological puzzle. So we'll just kind of stay with that theme. There's really three pieces to this theological puzzle, and we'll put it together here. The first piece of the theological puzzle we'll call the preservation of the saints. The preservation of the saints. Verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now, just a little grammar here. The pronoun she would normally hearken back to what's called the antecedent, the, the person referred to most recently. In this case, that would be Eve. But this time, verses 13 and 14, the two verses right before them, right before verse 15, they're parenthetical in nature. Remember this. They're the reasons for verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. What is the parenthesis? What are the reasons? Verses 13 and 14 go there. So the she in verse 15 refers to a woman, any woman of the church, in verses 11 and 12. So what does this phrase mean, she will be saved through childbearing? Well, sometimes the way to understand the Bible is to eliminate what it can't mean and to eliminate those options. So here's some interpretive options that we can eliminate. It can't mean spiritual salvation through childbirth. That can't be what this is, that women somehow receive forgiveness of sin through childbirth. There's an obvious couple of problems here. Salvation is by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, not by any works. And also, not all women have children. So that can't be it. It can't be safety in the process of childbirth. That is actually a fairly common interpretation that, that Christian women are promised safety in childbirth, that saved women will be kept safe through the painful and dangerous process of giving birth. Well, there's a problem here because... Many Christian women have died, sadly, in the process of giving birth in the mysterious but sovereign plan of God. It can't be, and this is actually a fairly common view, salvation by what they would call the childbearing. Salvation by the childbearing, that women are saved, as are men, by the childbearing, meaning the birth of the child, Jesus Christ, and his subsequent death on the cross. Now, in the Greek text, there is a definite article, the, in, in English, but it is the bearing of children, not the child. So that's what it would have to be, the meaning of the focus is on Christ, and that's not the context at all. This is not a, a specifically Christological passage. That would make no sense in the context of the behavior and conduct of the women of the church. And it can't be salvation despite the curse of bearing children. Salvation despite the curse of bearing children. Now, what's wrong with that statement? The curse of sin is not expressed in bearing children. It's expressed in bearing children with pain from Genesis 3. Meaning not just physical pain, but more relevantly, the pain of raising sinners who were born as little rebels and reprobates. Yes, I know, I've heard the rumor that childbirth is painful. But what's more painful is raising little sinners who won't do what you say. And so it can't be that 
They're saved despite the curse of bearing children because bearing children is not the curse. It's bearing children with pain. So what can it not be? We have to eliminate these options. It can't be that women achieve salvation through obedience to God's ordained order for the family. Lots of so-called traditional wives and mothers have rejected the gospel, which is the only means of salvation. So that can't be the case. But there is an undeniable fact that we have to deal with, and that is the usage of the Greek word translated saved. Because every other time that Paul uses this Greek word in the pastoral epistles, remember 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are kind of a grouping. Every other time he uses this particular word, it specifically refers to spiritual salvation from sin. Every time. So that leaves us with a bit of a conundrum. Now the form of this verb helps us. And we have to dig into the weeds just a little bit here to understand this. The form of this verb saved, first of all, is in a passive form. Passive voice, they call it. It means that something else is acting upon the woman. She didn't save herself through a good work. God has saved her. God has completed a good work in her. So we can eliminate through that passive voice any idea that somehow the woman is doing something to achieve salvation. But we also see that this verb is a future tense verb. Now we're getting to the crux of it. What this is talking about is the full realization of end times eschatological salvation, the consummation of faith in Christ, the consummation of justification, the arrival in heaven as a perfected Christ-like saint of God. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are justified. You are fully ready to go to heaven right now at this moment. Your sins are forgiven. The righteousness of God has been imputed and credited to you. But are you at this moment actually completely righteous? No, you're not. The outcome of your salvation hasn't happened yet. In that sense, you have yet to be saved, right? Because all the outworkings aren't complete. And in fact, this isn't the only place in the New Testament we see this idea. We see this elsewhere in the New Testament. Romans 5 verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. That's present tense. We are justified. Much more shall we be saved. Future tense again. By him from the wrath of God. We're justified now. We shall be saved in the consummation of our salvation later. 1 Corinthians 3.15, speaking of the heavenly reward for good deeds done in, in faith on the earth, the Apostle Paul says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Future tense again, the, the, the completion of your salvation. And so, verse 15, yet she will be saved, must be speaking then of this final step of salvation. You're familiar with 1 John 3.2, Very comforting to us. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's future. We shall be like Christ. We shall be saved. We shall be completed. Now, who who does this preservation? Well, that's the work of God alone. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9 says that the Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're guiltless before God and you will remain so all the way to the day of Christ. Colossians 3, 3 and 4 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will 
appear with him in glory. It's a certainty. 2 Timothy 4.18, the Apostle Paul says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Your salvation is guarded. 1 Peter 1 tells us this, that you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you catch that? Salvation that's not yet consummated, not yet completed, ready to be revealed. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You're sealed, you're bound up, you're held in the hand of God. Hebrews 7.25, consequently he, that is Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I love this word. Christ saves to the uttermost. It's a Greek word that means to the end of all things, to completion, that you will not, as your last act on this earth, commit a sin and somehow forfeit your salvation. Your salvation is secure. In fact, Hebrews 10, 14 says, for by a single offering, Christ is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Did you catch that? You're in the process of being made like Christ, but you will be perfected for all time. And so we see this very clearly that the first part of our theological puzzle the preservation of the saints, yet she will be saved. There's a second, second part of our theological puzzle. We'll call this one assurance for the saints. Assurance for the saints. Now, verse 15 begins with this little conjunction, yet, or it can be translated, but she will be saved through childbearing. And there's a contrast here. What's the contrast? Well, remember that Paul is taking a substantial amount of time and effort to explain the role of women in the church as related to the role of women in the home. We talked about that a lot last time. We saw last time that false teachers in the church were perverting the the created divine order of Genesis 1 and 2. They were encouraging women to find their worth in showing off their wealth, showing off their sexuality, and in rejecting the God-given helping roles of wife and mother. And if they were wanting to reject God's plan for the home, then they were likely to reject God's plan for the church, which is male leadership, which is going to be made even more clear in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so the contrast is this. Instead of seeking satisfaction in playing parts outside the will of God, by contrast, the saved woman who is regenerate, a new creation in Christ, will be saved through childbearing. And I'll explain that in a moment. We've already established this can't be that a woman earns her salvation through her family life. So what does this mean that outside the, that outside the decree of God for the home and the church is not the place that a woman can find her assurance, but it's inside God's decree? What do we mean by that? That she'll be saved through childbearing. Well, let me give you two details that will really help with this. I think it's going to help enlighten you. First of all, through childbearing is not referring specifically and solely to the act of giving birth. More broadly, it refers to the faithful raising of children, of devoting yourself to to your family. This is a figure of speech called a synecdoche. Synecdoche is where a part of something represents the whole thing. In this case, a woman's privileged role in her home and her family responsibilities are, are represented by the smaller part of the actual act of giving birth. 
But the bigger picture is that she's devoting herself to her home according to God's design. And so what we have then is this idea that the giving of birth is representative of what God would have her to do for a longer period of time. But this one's going to be even easier for you to understand. The preposition translated through childbearing, through childbearing, this normally speaks of the means by which something happens, that you go through this light to get here, for example. But since salvation can't be achieved by good works, we already know this, then that preposition reverts to a less frequent but a legitimate use that means attendant circumstances. What do we mean by this? It's not that the woman is saved by means of childbearing, but she is saved while bearing children. That there's an accompaniment. And the contrast here is meant to provide assurance of salvation for the Christian woman. Paul said in verses 11 and 12 that women are not to teach or to have spiritual authority over men. We've covered this already. The contrast is the woman who embraces her calling as the great influencer in the home. A woman who attempts to have great influence as a leader in the church over men or a leader over a whole church, by contrast, is in danger of proving her salvation to be utterly false. But the woman who loves Christ demonstrates that love for Christ by fulfilling the God-given mission which, generally speaking, God created women for. Again, some don't marry for a variety of reasons. We've covered that already, and they're a tremendous gift to Christ's church, according to 1 Corinthians 7. But for the truly saved woman, she trusts that the Lord's plan is best. She doesn't push back. She doesn't shirk the incredible responsibility and amazing leadership that she has as the manager of her home under her husband's authority. She doesn't push back. She embraces it. Now, just to make sure that uh, all of us aren't off the hook here, we can apply the same principle, frankly, to any area of Christian obedience, right? If you don't want to obey... If you choose not to obey, if you continually demonstrate your lack of desire to obey, to follow Christ in anything which he's commanded, then you cannot have confidence in the assurance of your salvation. You have no confidence. Habitual sin and rebellious disobedience and true assurance don't go together. You can't have those two at the same time. They can't cohabitate. Or if there is assurance, maybe it's false assurance. So, when Paul says here, yet she will be saved through childbearing, while childbearing, his point is very simple. The fact that she is embraced with all of her heart and her mind, God's plan for her life, and she is loved being a wife and loved being a mother and loved raising her children and making her home this incredible place of warmth and welcoming and joy and love and laughter, that gives her pause at the end of every day to say i am walking exactly in the will of god i'm doing so with joy what does that give her gives her assurance of salvation because she's walking in god's plan we've looked at the theological puzzle pieces of the preservation of the saints assurance for the saints one more theological puzzle piece we'll call this one the perseverance of the saints the perseverance of the saints there is a caveat there's a condition to this consummated future salvation. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In other words, 
if her salvation proves to be genuine. Yes, God preserves our salvation. We've already established that. Scripture is very, very clear about that. And yet, at the same time, the New Testament is equally clear that we don't coast. We are to demonstrate the reality of our salvation. We don't hold to the idea of free grace, this perverted theological system that says that all you have to do is say, I believe in Jesus Christ and then I can go live however I want and I'm still a Christian. No. Let's see what some key figures in the New Testament say about the perseverance of the saints. What did Peter say? Second Peter 1, beginning in verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom, eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Confirm your calling and election. It's a word that means to validate it. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it just simply says, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That's validating it, making it obvious that you're a Christian. If the non-Christians around you would never have guessed that you're a Christian, then you're not validating, you're not confirming your calling. That's what Peter thought. What did John the Baptist think? John the Baptist preached in Matthew 3, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, i.e., act like a Christian if you say you are one. What did Luke think? Acts 14, beginning in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, you suffer all the way home and demonstrate the reality of your faith. What did the Apostle Paul think? Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12, he said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This isn't the sense in working for your salvation. You can't do that. But in the sense of living out the changed life of a true believer. You're different now. Colossians 1, 22 and 23, Paul said, for he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. It's not that the true Christian can discontinue being a Christian. That's not possible. But it's that not continuing in the faith demonstrates that you were never regenerate in the first place. And of course, we're warned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 7 of those churchified people who will appear before him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these mighty religious things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. What did the Apostle John think? 1 John 2, beginning in verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. It's a very simple litmus test. What did Jesus think? Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. He said in Luke chapter 8, at the end of his parable of the soils, 
as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Very directly, Jesus said in John 15, beginning in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. The Christian woman who devotes herself to her family and stays the course, doesn't abandon her marriage, doesn't abandon her responsibilities, which, by the way, is possible to do while still living under the same roof. This is simply one means by which she's demonstrating the fruit of true salvation and can enjoy that she is right in the center of the will of God and claim true Christian joy and peace and contentment. Just how influential can a mother be? I'd like to go to some familiar territory in the Old Testament, a place where a mother is giving sound wisdom and counsel to her son. And then we'll come back to 1 Timothy 3. But can you turn with me to Proverbs 31? Proverbs 31. I just love this chapter. It's so rich. Proverbs 31 is written by King Lemuel. But it records the advice and the godly counsel given to him by his mother, by his mom. The best option for the identity of King Lemuel is that this is Solomon, which makes sense because Solomon is the author of just about the rest of Proverbs. And so if this is Solomon's mother, these would be the words of Bathsheba, the one-time adulteress who became King David's wife and eventually gave birth to the wisest man who would ever live, and that is Solomon. Now, you're mostly familiar probably with Proverbs 31, beginning in verse 10. That's the classic poem about the excellent wife, that this mother of a king or a future king is telling him what kind of wife he must have. But that portion also demonstrates what she's teaching him, what is important to him. Everything that the excellent wife poem, beginning in verse 10, is teaching him what he is to value. It's also what, or what his wife is to value. It means that's what he is to value, what's to be important to him as a man with responsibility, as a man who represents God before God's people and who has charge over many, many things. Now, I wish I had time to go through every verse, but I just want to hit some highlights. I want to highlight some character qualities that this king's mother urged him to value and to live by. This is the influence of a godly mother. We'll just kind of do a little list here. The, the first value that she wanted to influence in him is that he is to be moral. He is to be moral. In verse 3 of chapter 31, she says to her son, Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. He's to set an example. He's not to be distracted by ridiculous sins which can lead him astray. Now, of course, we know that Solomon didn't heed this principle and he paid a hefty price for it. That's another topic for another day. But you can't blame his mom. His mom said, you be moral. You be upright. It's the second character quality she influenced in him. He is to be faithful. He's to be faithful. Verse 10, she begins the poem, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. Near the end of the chapter, verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed. 
her husband also, and he praises her. This is a picture of a nobleman, a a king of some sort, married for decades now, and he's thrilled with his excellent wife who is worthy of his praise. What is this? She's telling him, you are to value one woman. You are to value this one woman. In fact, Proverbs 5, Solomon writes that that, that he says that men are to cherish the wives of their youth, the one woman. He's to be moral. He's to be faithful. There's a third character quality she would influence. He's to be clear-headed. He's to be clear-headed. Verse 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. The principle here is that for those leading God's people, they must be in control of their senses at all times. This isn't a blanket condemnation of drinking across the board, but it does set a standard that's higher, that's loftier for those God has entrusted with the task of leading his people. She says, basically she's saying, other people can have parties, other people can drink, not you. You're a king. You must be clear-headed at all times. There's a fourth character quality she would teach him, to be self-regulating. Self-regulating. Verse 2 She says, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? He's not only her son, the son that she gave birth to, but the son that was born a result of her vows, of her crying out to God. Now, why would a mother cry out to God for a son? In Bathsheba's case, you remember that in her adulterous affair with King David, she conceived and gave birth to a son, But in punishment for David's sin, the child died. But after this, 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 24, says she bore a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. In other words, the child was named Solomon, but the Lord had a nickname for him, Jedidiah. It means beloved of the Lord. So the clear precedent here By the way, ladies, I have very good news for you. It says, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? She is saying, I gave birth to you, therefore I get to tell you what to do. (laughs) Clear precedent from the Bible right there. By the way, this is an adult son. Moms of adults, you tell them, I'm still your mom. I didn't drop off the radar the moment you turned 18. And I'm wiser now than you'll ever be. So just listen up. How does she speak into his life in verse two? Three times. Doesn't this sound like a mom? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? I love that. Can't get away from that. In other words, she's exhorting him to question what he does and to control what he does, to self-regulate what he does, to do what is wise, to do what is right, to do what is good. And I'll bet that question would ring in Solomon's mind. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Not only is he to be self-regulating, there's a fifth quality, character quality she would teach him to be appropriate. To be appropriate. Verse three, don't chase after women. Verse four, don't chase after strong drink. In other words, be a leader that can be looked up to. Be a leader that is appropriate. Be a leader that knows how to behave himself, that can be a role model. People say, well, character doesn't matter. They're close. 
Character is everything. Character is everything. There's a sixth character quality. He's to be inclusive. He's to be inclusive. Look with me at verse 8. She tells her son, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. She exhorts him not to be too big for his britches, to not be above others, but rather to look out for those on the outside, to look out for the helpless, to look out for the downcast, to help them, to be a friend to strangers, so to speak. There's a seventh quality. She exhorts him to be knowledgeable, to be knowledgeable. Verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. By the way, this verse is the theological center of the whole chapter. This is the result of abiding by all the admonitions and the principles that the ruler, the leader, will now sit in the, in the city gates. This is the place where wisdom is given, where decisions are rendered. And he'll be known there. And listen, he wouldn't be invited to be there if he weren't wise in the ways of the Lord and of his word. And just so we understand this, in the economy of God in Israel, true wisdom was very simply defined as having the knowledge of the law of God and being able to explain how to apply it to your life. That's wisdom. So he's to be knowledgeable. There's an eighth character quality he was to have. He's to be sober. He's to be sober. Verse 6. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty poverty and remember their misery no more in other words for the dying man a strong drink is a small pleasure on his way out of this world but for a leader for a ruler of men he cannot be ruled by that which would dull his senses and make him thick and make him dense and make him appear to be an idiot there's a ninth quality she would teach him to be humble to be humble Second half of verse 5, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. The leader who mangles and steps on the lives of the least of society, the weakest among us, demonstrates an arrogance and pride in his position. His goal is to control others, not to serve them. Instead, here mom says, be humble. Don't be above anyone else. She gives him a 10th character quality, peaceful. He's to be peaceful. Verse 9, open your mouth, judge righteously. In other words, what comes out of his mouth is to be righteous. It is to be thoughtful. It is to be good. He thinks about what he says. He doesn't have a quick tongue. He doesn't have a quick temper. He's peaceful. He opens his mouth with righteousness. There's an 11th quality we could identify. He's to be generous. He's to be generous. Verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. It's a word that means profit. The context of this whole chapter tells us that he trusts his wife with his money and even with some of his business dealings. And so rightly, he's concerned about making a profit. But at the same time, look at verse 20. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. By telling the king or the future king to look out for a generous wife, mom is telling him to have a heart of generosity, that money is not everything, to not be greedy, to not be a lover of money. There's a 12th quality we could identify. He's family-oriented. He's family-oriented. There's a key word in this chapter. Verse 15, 
household. Verse 21, household. Verse 21 again, household. Verse 27, household. That family is to be a major part of this man's life as evidenced by the importance placed on his wife's management of the household. And by the way, verse 28, what does this look like? Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. What is that? That's an ancient Mother's Day. Guys, if you're wondering, what do I do on Mother's Day? Rise up and call her blessed. There's the 13th quality she identifies. He is to be authoritative. Authoritative. Verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Now follow my logic here. What has to happen in a household for children to listen to their mother? One of the elements that has to happen is a father who makes them listen to their mother. And notice the example of praise that the husband gives at the end of verse 28. Her husband also, and he praises her. Listen, that sort of positive teaching and conversation and input and discipleship does not take place in a chaotic, uncontrolled, unmanaged household. He's to be experienced. He's to be experienced. Remember, Bathsheba is speaking to a man who would become king when he's a very young man. Scripture does not tell us the precise age that Solomon was, but the best scholarship lands at about age 20 when he became king. No matter his age, 1 Chronicles 29.1, David, his father, said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom God alone has chosen. I'm sure Solomon's going, hey, that sounds pretty good. He's young and inexperienced. Oh, that doesn't sound so good. And the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord. So David knew. This kid is wet behind the ears. Now, we don't know this for certain, but given the fact that Bathsheba so clearly spoke into Solomon's life to be wise, to be wise, it would not surprise us at all if it were her wisdom that provoked this exchange. 1 Kings 3, beginning in verse 5, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. Then you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your covenant king in place of David, my father, You have made your servant, rather, king in place of my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. This is Solomon saying, I don't even know where the exit and the entrance is. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. And here's his request. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? And God was very pleased and promised to make Solomon the wisest man who ever lived. One more character quality that mom would teach her son. He is to be reputable. He's to be reputable. Once again, verse 23, the theological center of this chapter. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. He's known He's a pillar of the community. He sits as an example. 
First Kings 4, beginning in verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt for he was wiser than all other men. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and the songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Now that is a reputation. What did mom teach him? Son, you were to be moral. You were to be faithful. You were to be clear-headed, self-regulating, appropriate, inclusive, knowledgeable, sober, humble, peaceful, generous, family-oriented, authoritative, experienced, reputable, All of these were taught to him and instilled in him by his mother. By his mother. These are the qualities of a man who lead the people of God and to be a man who demonstrates what living in the obedience of the Lord looks like. Moms, listen, with both your boys and your girls, you exert tremendous, tremendous influence. But just to illustrate for your boys for a moment, the incredible role that you have can't be underestimated just for a moment, I'd like for you to turn back with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, after giving the outline of the godly women of the church in 1 Timothy 2, then Paul clearly declares the male leadership of the church of Jesus Christ. And the church rises or falls on its leadership, and so the importance of the character of her leaders can't be overestimated Moms, what character traits can you be instilling in your boys? Listen carefully. The same ones that the mother of a king instilled in her son. He is to be moral. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. He's to be faithful. Verse 2. He's to be the husband of one wife. He's to be clear-headed, verse 2, sober-minded. He is to be self-regulating, verse 2, self-controlled. He's to be appropriate, verse 2, respectable. He's to be inclusive, verse 2, that he's to be hospitable. It means literally a lover of strangers, lover of those on the outside, lover of those in need of the gospel, lover of those of need in, in care. He's to be knowledgeable, verse 2, able to teach. He is to be sober, verse 3, not a drunkard. He is to be humble, verse 3, not violent but gentle, a man who doesn't see himself above others. He is to be peaceful, verse 3, is not quarrelsome, not someone who likes to fight or sees relationships as something you win. He is to be generous, verse 3, not a lover of money, not controlled by greed. He sets an example in this area. He is to be family-oriented, verse 4, he manages his own household well. Literally in Greek, he stands in front of his household. He is to be authoritative, verse 4, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Why? Verse 5, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He's to be experienced. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And one more, he is to be reputable. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Moms, you are training the next leaders of the church of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I have a little challenge for you to consider. There's 15 character qualities and they're listed right here easily in 1 Timothy 3. You can use how I rename them or you can use these names here. But moms, I would encourage you to make that list and every day you speak to your boys in particular about one of those things. Every day. And 30 years from now, 40 years from now, when they are standing before a congregation like this, or when they are leading and shepherding the people of God or leading a Bible study, those 15 qualities will be replaying in their mind over and over and over again, all because of you. And men, I have a challenge for you as well. My challenge for you is to live those things. It's kind of hard for a mom to teach her son not to be a drunkard when you're diving for the bottle as soon as you get home. It's hard for a mom to teach her son to be a leader when you're passive. And so support her by demonstrating. She should be able to say, be like your dad. Well, let's summarize 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. Very simple summary. Men teach men. Women raise men. John Chrysostom was once asked about the value of his extensive education in preparation for the gospel ministry. He valued his education, but he said, quote, I drank still more deeply of the things of the Spirit from my mother. That's who he gave credit. Let's pray. Our Father, all of this is meaningless without a true and living and active relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no good work, no act of mothering or fathering or helping people in the world or doing good deeds or anything that appears good that can impress you. In fact, you've told us in the Bible that our good deeds are like filthy, disgusting rags before you. Our sacrifices, which we would think would please you, you you say, get them away from me. I don't want to see them. Because salvation from sin cannot be by works, but it is by grace. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, is revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. And so this day I would pray for a man or a woman who does not know Christ, who in pride has believed that they would please God. But the Bible says there is no one who does good, no, not one. There is no one who seeks after God. All have turned away. Together they are all worthless. And so we must find our worth in Christ and in Christ alone. May this be the day when the Holy Spirit would move to that one or two who don't know Christ to repent of their sins and to now walk in that glorious gospel and to now obey the Lord, not out of some misguided hope to impress you, but to obey you out of love and gratitude for the salvation given freely by Christ at the cross of Calvary. And it is in his name we pray and ask these things. Amen.